0: play country music, need to slow that guitar down, tell us about the tear in your beard, your woman done you wrong, I like that one about the day, when your girlfriend met your wife, or how that biker did.
1: Hey good evening everybody this is Cliff Bowman coming to you in uh, my basement here at the doing my first podcast I want to thank everybody for tuning in uh, this is going to be a very special time for me to to go on and, and talk about what it means to be a mental health warrior and how I got to to where I am today um, you know that path that I've taken has has been a long road um, but you know as a lot of us our veterans out there are hurting and suffering with with everything going on and I just want to you know, with this podcast, I just want to talk about my story of hope and what I've done uh, in my path to becoming a mental health warrior. And maybe some of those who are listening can, can relate to to what I went through uh, and maybe find hope in that and then be able to and be brave and ask for help uh, when I did, when I was having my issue. Um, you know, it's a, today's an important day for me, uh, December 20th. And that's why I chose today to uh, be the first day to start my podcast. Um, 19 years ago today on, on this date, I was, uh, alone in my brother's house there in Kansas city, um, dealing with a lot of guilt. Um, I was at the Pentagon on nine 11 and all the things that I saw and did, and I was sitting in a room and it was dark, much like this one is if I, if I turned the lights down and I was just sitting there and, and I was in my thoughts and earlier in that day, I'd already decided that I didn't, I didn't want to live anymore. And I got a piece of tissue paper. And I just wrote a simple note, I'm going to write that right here. I had this note for a lot of years, but I lost it uh, moving around in the military. Um, I know it's kind of hard to read, but I'll, I'll read it. Um, I said, I don't want to live with the guilt of not finding anybody alive anymore. But I just can't handle it. Um, and then I said, I love you all. And I set it down on the table. Um, took 22 sleeping pills and I laid down as I'm drifting off. Um, my mind just starts to wonder uh, as the effects of the sleeping pills start taking effect. You know, one thing I want to talk about is as I'm laying there thinking about that, I'm thinking about what went on in my life and how did I get there? And so I want to talk about now is how did I go from this happy-go-lucky guy who, who joined the military in 1987 to in 2002... December 20th, I'm laying on the couch in my brother's house, uh, very close to death. Um, My life started out uh, in in Kansas City, Missouri. I grew up, uh, I was born in Kansas City on January 24th, 1970. It's kind of funny. My grandfather talks about, my mom had a terrible, I was number four or five kids, and she just had a terrible time giving birth to me. And it went on for like 13 hours, 14 hours. And it's funny, my grandfather always told me, he's like, you know, when he came out and everything was all said and done, he says, all you did was take a big yawn. You saw these big blue eyes and white hair and, and just smiled and then he went to sleep. And so that they, they teased me about that for a lot of years. But, you know, growing up as a kid, our, our life was was pretty normal. We grew up in a lower middle class, uh, mostly probably closer to the poor, but we didn't know we were poor. Um, you know, if you look at the pictures that I'm showing, you, you can see there as, as us as, as kids growing up, I'm, I had, you know, really white hair, or blonde hair. And, and for the most part, we were a really close knit family. We, we lived in Kansas City for a while. But then when I was young, we moved down south to a small town called the War, Missouri. And that's where I spent pretty much from second grade until um, I left in 2000 and went uh, to work in the National Guard Bureau. Uh, you know, growing up in a war in a small town was fun. We lived on a farm out south of town. We, we had a lot of fun. We, we enjoyed, you know, all the, all the times as a family, we, we hunted, we fished. Um, we always had, you know, pets at the house and, and always enjoyed having different pets. And I kind of want to tell the story and I'm, I'm telling the story for Vincent and Claudio if you're watching. Um, my older brother always raised all kinds of chickens and animals and we, we did a lot of coon hunting stuff. And one of our coon dogs had gotten lost. And in the process of getting lost, we didn't find a coon dog for a couple of days. And so by the time we had found her, apparently she was in heat and she had, she had made it and she had pups, but the pups were mixed. They were you know, purebred coon dogs, red bone actually. And so you know, the dogs for us wasn't worth anything. So my brother had found this guy that had a couple of uh, chickens and he had this baby vulture. And so we traded in those coon dogs for these these chickens and vultures, and we actually hand raised this vulture, and his name was Baby, and you see the pictures there. Well, Baby used to perch on top of a house at night, and uh, it's funny to watch the cars drive by because they would slow down, they would see this vulture up on top of the house. But us kids would come out in the morning, and we'd we'd go outside, and Baby would fly down and, and be in the yard, and he would play with us all the time. And I had these pair of white tennis shoes, and he didn't really particularly like my white tennis shoes. I, I, I don't know why, but if you see, look at that picture, you see them, he's pecking at my, my tennis shoes. And, and it was funny, we'd go down to the creek fishing and, and swimming or whatever, and baby would, uh, he would follow us down and he would circle above us or land in a tree while we were swimming or messing around at the creek. And then we went back home, he'd fly back home. But one thing he used to do, and it used to drive my brother crazy and my, my family, and they'll get a kick out of this watching, is he would land on top of our chicken cube. And as the chickens would come out to the yard, it was fence, he would swoop down at them and they would run back in and he'd go back up and land up. He'd do this for hours, teasing And so we had to teach him how to not to do that because the age production of the chickens kept going down. Uh, so it, it was quite funny. Uh, you know, growing as a kid in a small town, I, I took to sports, I enjoyed wrestling. Uh, wrestling meant a lot to me. I, I wrestled from age five and then wrestled some in college. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I had uh, you know, a wrestling club there, a lot of us, because we're all from the same community, wrestled from the time we were five, six years old all the way through high school. And I remember we had this one kid, his name was Joe Crabtree, and he was, a, he was a good wrestler. And He really pushed me to be a much better wrestler as we was moving through school. But I had a good friend of mine, Todd, and you heard a song in the beginning, and I'll talk more about him at the end. Uh, we were friends in high school, and Todd joined the guard actually before I did about three months and he actually convinced me that I needed to join the national guard. And so at age 17, I convinced my parents that that's what I want to do. I wanted to join the national guard. And then I was able, we went and, uh, you know, I joined the guard and it was kind of funny because the, the armory for the, where we drilled that was right across the street from the high school. So it, it was, it was kind of funny that you just go across the street and then you have drill on the weekends there. Um, But, you know, it was was very interesting. My time in in a war was great. Uh, Going through high school, I broke. Uh, My older brother wrestled. Uh, He's four years old. I broke most of his records. (laughs) Shout out, Chris. Uh, You know, but we were happy, you know, go lucky family. We we were, like I said, we were poor. We didn't have much to go on, but we just enjoyed life. We enjoyed being around each other. Uh, You know, and it was just a, a lot of fun. And, you know, there's this one kid that I wrestled in school. And his name was Scott and he was two years older than me and he was from a different school and uh, when we would wrestle I could never beat him I almost beat him my sophomore year which was his senior year and then he graduated and I didn't see him for two years well like I said early on I, I um, joined the National Guard in, in 1987 in March and then in June that year I left to go to basic training and I'm on the bus going to Fort Leonard Wood and Todd's actually on the bus, my friend. And uh, the friend of mine who I wrestled got on the bus. I hadn't seen him for two years. And I was like, hey, don't I know you? And we've been friends ever since. We wound up going basic training together. And He he was in the Guard for six years, got out, joined the Navy, became a SEAL, and was a SEAL for 20-plus years. I has since now retired. Um, but, you know, going through the National Guard and, and going through that part of my life, You know, as as a young teenager, kind of really helped shape me. I was kind of a a troublemaker, and we used to run around and and have a lot of fun. Me and me and Todd and and Mike, and and we just enjoyed being teenagers in a small town, right? We did all kinds of mischief. I remember one story, and I'm I'm only going to tell a couple of them, but Todd had just gotten his new Chevy pickup truck, and it kind of rained that that spring. And so we decided to, you know, go out and, and take a trip, you know, it was, it was late at night, it was on the weekend, and we're just driving down the country roads, and they're kind of curvy and whatever, and we had a buddy Rick with us, and, and Todd's like, hey, Rick, see how well my truck corners, and as he goes around a corner, I had enough time to say la, and he drove it right into the lake. <laughs> Luckily, we were able to get the truck back out of the lake. Uh, but, you know, that, that was a lot of fun. Uh, if you look up in the one of the pictures there is, is when I graduated uh, basic training and one of the guys standing there was Mike Sutherland and, and me and Mike ran around a lot. He was a, a big kid in school. He's I think one of the first kids to bench press 300 uh, there at our school and him and I always had a great time running together. I, he was way bigger than I was. I was 119 pounds in school uh, and we just had a lot of fun and I just really enjoyed life and, and things were going well. Um, I was in... Um, you know, AWARA, up until 2000, where I got a phone call um, to come and go work at at National Guard Bureau on an ADOS uh, tour. And if you don't know what that is, that's just active duty special work. And you go there for a short, short amount of time. And then you work usually a year. And then after that, you return home. So it was at that time that I accepted the the job and left. It would have been um, September of of 2000. Uh, I took that job, left, and went out to to National Guard Bureau. And it's kind of funny. So here I am in my red pickup truck, leaving a town of 6,000 people and driving to Washington, D.C., which I'd never been before. And so as I get into Washington, D.C., I reported to Fort McNair there just across the 14th Street Bridge, and it was... I don't o'clock at night. And I, I, of course I had no idea where I was at. And if anybody knows that's been up in that area, it's a little bit different now because of the baseball stadium, but back in 2000, it was completely different. It's a pretty rough neighborhood. Uh, and so I go and I unload myself in a hotel and, you know, I go ask the gate guard, I said, Hey, uh, you know, where's a good place. I want to grab a bite to eat. I'm hungry. And he's like, Oh, well, if you go down a couple of blocks and turn left, and go up on top of the hill, there's a Taco Bell there and you can get something to eat and come back. I said, okay, great. Now, mind you, I'm in a a GMC Sonoma four-wheel drive pickup truck with big tires, Missouri plates, and it's red. And as I'm driving, I leave Fort McNair and I'm driving up the street, you kind of get that feeling when you're not in such a great neighborhood, right? And so I get at the Taco Bell I've never seen bulletproof glass so thick in my life at that point in my life. And I pull up to the window and there's like the poop glass, like four inches thick. And there's like a little bitty hole just big enough to pass the money through and get your food. And as I'm getting my food and, you know, putting it in the truck, a car in front of me comes screaming around. There's a 7-Eleven next to the, to the Taco Bell. It comes screaming around, there's another car behind it. The guy in the first car jumps out, the two guys in the back car shoots the guy and then they take off. And so I am not in DC, not even an hour and I saw my first attempted murder. And so that that was crazy. So I get back to the base and the next morning I'm getting gas at the gas station. And the the little lady at the the gas station, it it was so funny. Um, I was telling her the story. And she's like, oh, honey, you never go right out of the gate after dark. <laughs> I thought that I'd go find that security guard and drag him out back for that. Uh, but, you know, that was a lot of fun. And, and working at the National Guard Bureau, I had a had a great time and, and really enjoyed it. You know, and as 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 I went down through the path of, of everything leading up to 9-11, you know, and I look back at my life and, and everything was you know, it was pretty normal. I had normal relationships where you were with somebody and then you broke up or, you know, I had friends that we were really close with and then we wasn't, and we are close again. And, and you know, things were, were pretty normal on a, on a pretty even uh, path. And so, I, you know, and so as I go out and I talk and, and I'm doing this podcast and it's, it's my first one I've done and I'm really trying to tell, you know, how I came from and, and what my life was before December 20th. 2002 and I kind of shared some of my stories of my childhood and, and you know my childhood was happy I, I have no complaints we were poor didn't know we were poor uh, you know my military career up into that point point in the National Guard was was fine we we used to go to Germany and we'd run around Germany for annual training for three weeks and that was great fun and I became a master fitness trainer in the army as an E6 and then from there I became a warrant officer and I was actually a warrant officer when I uh, CW two and I left and went to National Guard Bureau to work, uh, you know, in Washington D.C. or in Arlington, actually. And you know, my life leading up to nine eleven was 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 pretty good. It wasn't extraordinary. This, you know, I talk about this all the time when I do my speaking events. Is you know, my life isn't so extraordinary that it couldn't happen to anybody listening here. Uh, and so I remember everybody remembers what they were doing on nine eleven, right? Everybody does. Everybody remembers what they were doing when the first plane hit the tower, when the second plane hit the tower, when, you know, the the plane hit the Pentagon. And, you know, one thing I want to talk about before I dive deeper into what uh, is really what I'll talk about, what it means to be a mental health warrior, is some of the things I talk about, I'm very open and honest, and it may be a trigger for some of you listening out here. But just know if you're having issues or problems. Uh, be sure and pick up and you know and call the Veterans Crisis Line at any time or or phone a buddy or or call call nine one one. Just know that we all we all we all love you. We want you here and we want you to see tomorrow. You know, and I'll just say that before I go into my story a little bit about nine eleven and how I wound up at my brother's house, uh, December twentieth. I remember the, the morning of 9-11, I got into work and I worked in the automation uh, information system division there in the uh, JP1, they called it the Jefferson Plaza one in Arlington. And so in the Guard Bureau, we were in Arlington because at that time they were renovating the Pentagon. So <clears throat> the Guard was the first to leave and the last to go back into that the spaces that they were fixing. And, and so I'm there in Crystal City and uh, my boss, who was an Air Force colonel, <clears throat> never, he never came into work late that morning. And I don't know if he's watching the events that unfolded in, in New York. And that's why he was late, but he was late coming into work. And we were scheduled to be over at the Pentagon uh, to hook up some equipment, some telephone equipment there where the swing space was for our generals. And it just happened to be the spot right where the plane hit. And so he comes in late. I give him the morning report, you know, what's all going on. And then me and E6, we leave. Uh, from there, we start, you know, walking over to the Pentagon. Um, and we got, uh, it was maybe four or five blocks away that walk was. Uh, you know, that morning, it was, you know, it was a, a typical September weather morning for Virginia. It wasn't too hot or too cold. <clears throat> and uh, as we're walking over there, that's when the, the plane hit. And when it hit, I mean, you could, you felt the concussion of the explosion and the E6 that was with me, I sent him back to the building and then I moved forward uh, and started the search and and rescue from there. And, you know, it it was just all mayhem there. As you can imagine, everybody saw it on the news where where people run around trying to help and, and people confused and disbelief and not really understanding what, what really had just, you know, transpired. Um, And I would stay there on the the 9-11 for about six hours. The first day Uh, was there assisting and everything. And then I was uh, command directed back to go to the building. Uh, You know, I guess do accountability or whatever. And it was at that time when I got back to the building that I had a good friend of mine that worked for AT&T at the time. His name was Bob. And so I called him on the phone and and he actually had an idea of, of using a spectrum analyzer to pick up cell phone frequencies. <clears throat> um, this, if anybody was buried in the rubble and they had the cell phone with them that we could try to locate them. And so it was early morning of the 12th, uh, we went back down to the site and it's, it's kind of funny is, is we had no reason to be, be down there other than his trucks at AT&T disaster recovery. And you know Bob always will talk about, it, you know he's amazed how well I was able to BS my way to get the security to get on site. Uh, and so we were able to get on site. You know, on what's on site, we started doing our search areas. Um, we got linked up with a guy named John. I don't think that was his his real name. And uh, we started working our way around the Pentagon, looking at looking um, at different things, and and um, starting you know the search areas. And so picture this it was me and bob and then my good friend jack had, had come down and we would carry a generator the analyzer and, and we would have to move this to have power to, to do the analyzer and then once we got a signal i, I didn't have a family i didn't have children at that time um, once we got a signal then i would go uh inside the pentagon and then try to retrieve something if it was there or, or not there uh you know if it, it was a, a cell phone was attached to somebody um, we were able to retrieve, uh, I think it was six or eight cell phones from, from victims of the 9-11 attack, but everybody that we found, um, you know, they were, they were deceased. We didn't, we didn't find anybody alive. And so, you know, as we continued the search and the day wears on, the, the Pentagon kept catching fire because of the way that the Slate roof was built on it. And so we'd do searches and we'd have to step out for a while where they put the fire out and we'd go back in. And I remember it was getting kind of late on the 12th and all of the command groups started setting up the FBI command center, NTSB, and all of them were setting up their their command areas because they're getting ready to start the investigation or be able to go into Pentagon and and look at at things. And we just started doing a search. We came out and uh, we went over to the NTSB huddle because I, I was aviation and I knew that those you know, airplanes have black boxes and they ping when they hit water, but I had no idea how much water they had to be in to, to ping. And so I went over there. I asked you where the, the ground commander was at that time. And it was a young lady and she came up and I was asked her a question. I said, you know, so how much water does that black box have to be in to start pinging?" And she thought, well, you know, usually 18 inches, two feet of water. And I said, well, I just came out from the Pentagon. There's places in there where there's feet of water. And it was interesting. She said she never they don't have the didn't have the equipment out there on site to pick up that peen. Uh but they should probably get it out there. And I think they brought it out there and I think 24 hours they, they found the black box uh, in the plane which is pretty incredible. Probably got her promoted and didn't know it. But I remember we had just got done talking to her and then me and Bob had moved back into the Pentagon. And I don't know if you know how the Pentagon works. There's you know different rings as as you work your way to the center of the Pentagon. And then we were in between C, which is the last, and B, which is the first part of the inner corridor. And that's the part where when the plane hit, the nose detached and, and acted like a, a missile going through there. And that's why you saw the half circle uh, of, of the Pentagon. And of course, all kinds of stuff was blue, blown through there. Uh, and by stuff, you can use your imagination. And so we had just came around the corner, we got set up, we got a, I'd now been on site for 10 hours. Um, Bob and I had been, and we just got another signal. And so I moved my way in uh, to try to retrieve the cell phone and he would stay out. And the reason we did that, because if the building collapsed, you could at least tell somebody where I was at for them to come in and try to rescue me uh, if the building collapsed. <clears throat> and so we get in there and retrieve the cell phone, we come back out. And I remember as, as I come out of the Pentagon, I mean, out of the out of the, the section that I just talked about, uh, there's a whole bunch of water and the lady's purse was laying in the water. And and I and I, I didn't want it to be ruined. I, it was having a profound effect on me already. And so I, I picked up her purse and I set it up on a ledge there um, because in my mind, I didn't I, I didn't want to get ruined further. And I wanted the families to have to have that back. And I remember as I picked it up and kind of gathered the things that had fallen out of it to set up on a, this piece of equipment, two FBI agents were walking down the corridor and they started yelling at me, uh, hey, don't be disturbing evidence. I don't, I don't, to be honest with you, I have no idea what they said to me, uh, but I just turned around and completely went the, the F off on them. I was like, you know, fuck you, fuck this, I've been here doing this, blah, 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 you know, I'm covered in blood and crap and shit and whatever, and they got clean suits on and I wasn't going to tolerate it. And I just started screaming. And I lost it. And um, Bob tried to calm me down. And they just kind to walked off. I guess they just they just didn't want to deal with me. And we continued our work. And it you know got to be um, early, really early morning of the the 13th. Um, they had just taken their bodies out out of the Pentagon. Uh, we were getting ready to leave uh, to go home. And we get to the house. We get we get ready to leave, and John takes us in to the uh, FBI Mobile Command Center because in case we come back down on site, uh, he doesn't want anybody to mess with this or tell him what we were doing. Uh, a couple of times the NSA had come down and tried to arrest us because they didn't know what we were picking up with our equipment uh, and things like that. And so we wrote our name on the, the FBI Command Center. And the, the first time I wrote my name, I wrote Red Dog, because my first name is Clifford, right? And They didn't think that was funny, but I got kicked out of it. Um, so we wrote our names on the board but I also remember, too, and, and I thought about this just now, and I, I should have said it earlier, is that if you ever saw a, a scanned out picture of the Pentagon, because we knew President Bush was going to come down and visit. But if you ever saw a scanned out picture when they dropped the flag off the side of the Pentagon and then he had that big beam in front that collapsed, there's actually two guys standing on the rubble, and that's me and Bob. And we had just gotten a signal I was getting ready to go in. Uh, to read this, to do the cell phone, we, we we didn't know what was going on. We just heard the flag the flag drop and people uh, cheer uh, and carry on, and then so you know we we just continued working, and so we get to the FBI command lab and and <laughs> I erased I erased the red the red dog because they didn't get kicked out of that, but I thought it was funny, and you know we just uh, we just we left the scene and and I, I went home. Um. <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah, it's the first time I really had a chance to, to think about what I saw and done for the last, you know, close to 48 plus hours. I, I called my family. They had no idea if I was alive or dead. They hadn't heard from me uh, since 9-11. This is now to the 13th, almost two days later. And I remember getting in the shower and I, I first of all i took my hat boots and gloves off and I, and I put them in a box and they remained in the box for a long time and i'll, and I'll talk about that later uh, in the next podcast and i took my uniform off I, I threw it in the wash and i get in the shower and in the shower is the first time that i really i, I just kind of got emotional and broke down you know i live by myself and you know in dc I, I didn't have anybody there uh and I just remember just being overly emotional in the shower and then, uh, you know, going to sleep that night uh, as much as I could sleep. I don't think I slept much. And then I got up the next morning and went to work and went on with my life. And that's pretty much how things went um, until a year after 9 11. And so I think uh, I want to thank everybody for. Watching the, the podcast today, I hope you enjoyed me talking a little bit about my story and, and kind of what I went through, uh, you know, kind of how I got to be a mental health warrior a little bit. And I'll go more into detail about that on the next podcast. Um, <clears throat> but I want to say that, uh, you know, it's a process, right? Everything that I went through and then that I dealt with that led up to my attempt on December 20th um, was a process. And so I'll talk more about that process. Uh, my next podcast. and And so it's really important to remember that you know we all have issues and problems in our life. it's It's coming up on Christmas in five days. You may be home, you may not be home. You may have family, may not have family. Uh, I know it's a stressful time for everybody. Uh, but you know, just please take that time to to reach out to somebody who maybe you haven't talked to for a while or, or maybe be feeling down or something, and just see how they're doing because, a text message or a kind word can, can go so far in, in somebody's life. And so tonight I want to end with really a couple of things. Uh, one, thanks for, for watching and listening to me ramble on about, about my story and kind of how I became a mental health warrior. Uh, I want to thank all the veteran trash talkers out there that are listening in tonight to learn a little bit more about the new member of the team. Uh, but also, I want to talk about uh, my buddy, Todd, who you heard his music a little bit in the beginning, and you'll hear it again uh, when I finish up talking. Uh, you know, Todd was a, a good friend of mine. I've known him for 30 plus years. Uh, we just deer hunting with him this past couple of, oh, a couple of weeks ago, actually. He's down at his place, deer hunting in Missouri. And Todd Todd had a rough time in Iraq. He had a lot of PTSD issues. And, and he was there at the, you know, at a veterans center and there in, in Missouri and, and went and learned how to uh, deal with his PTSD through music. And I think that's a great thing. You know, is one is people ask all the time, you know, when you have post traumatic stress syndrome, you know, how do you deal with the triggers? And one thing about being a mental health warrior is you have to learn how to deal with your triggers differently, right? So I have obviously 9 11 is a trigger for me. Uh, October 3rd, 2009 uh, is a trigger for me. I'll talk more about that later on my podcast where I jumped in the water and. And saved three fishermen on a, a boating accident. Um, saved three out of four fishermen actually. Um, and then, you know, December twentieth, which is today, the day that I'm talking to, uh, about this. But anyway, so Todd was was there, and a the guy was teaching guitar lessons, and Todd didn't knew nothing about guitar or music or anything. And so he learned through music as one of his coping mechanisms. Uh, for his PTSD. He, he has no professional training. He writes whatever he feels in his heart and wrote it down. And so when I decided to start doing this podcast, I thought, you know, what a great thing to have a veteran or somebody out there who you don't have to be a veteran. If you're dealing with PTSD issues or mental health issues and you found that music is a way for you to, to, to relieve that stress or deal with those PTSD when those triggers come up, uh, you know, Send me your music. You know, if it's it's one hundred percent written by you and it's all copyrighted by you, uh, I'll pick through songs and, and play them in the beginning and the end of each episode that I do because I think it's a really awesome thing. I want to say thank you to Todd for for sharing his music with me to allow to play on our first cast, our first podcast. And I want to thank all of you for listening in. Uh, you know, I want you all to have a great evening, have a great week, and take care. God bless.
0: play country music. Need to slow that guitar down. Tell us about the tear in your beard. Your woman done you wrong. I like that one about the day when your girlfriend met your wife. Or how that Blue eyes crying in the rain, stuck in folks' prison, listening to a train. Who's gonna fill their shoes? And a boy named Sue. How much a cowboy hat means to you? You're walking on the biting side of me. How much you miss? Oh, Bobby. To play country music, you need to slow that guitar down. Tell us about the tear in your beer, how your woman done you wrong. I like that one about the day when your girlfriend met your wife, or how that biker. Hopping on the bus, get on the road again I'm going out drinking with all my rowdy friends Walk the streets of Bakersfield Pappy brewed white lightning in the hills No got me, honky-tonk angels. Pick and dole and banjos Guitars and Cadillacs Man of front dressed in black wanna play country music, you need to slow that guitar down. Tell us about the tear in your beer, how your woman did you wrong, or how much you miss old Johnny Cash. And if that ain't country, I'll get your ass.